0: Hey there, listeners. This is Jasmine Aguilera, head of audio at the LA Times. Thank you so much for following and listening to LA Times podcasts, like Asian Enough. You'll still be able to find Asian Enough on your favorite podcast platforms. But starting April 11th, you're going to see a new show popping up in your feed. It's called Foretold. Foretold follows the story of Paulina Stevens, a Romani woman who was raised with the assumption that she would leave school, marry young, and become a fortune teller. Her fate seemed pretty certain, until she decided to leave it all behind. With Paulina's story as a starting point, Foretold will take you past the neon psychic signs and trendy tarot cards to unravel myths and stereotypes that have followed the Romani people for centuries. If you follow Asian enough, you already follow Foretold. Be among the first to hear Episode 1 on April 11th, and keep following for new episodes every Tuesday. Can a fortune teller change your fate? Find out on Foretold, a new podcast from the LA Times.
1: From the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian-American guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian-American.
2: I'm one of your hosts, Johanna Buya. And I'm your other host, Suhana Hussein. Today, we're joined by Thanmori Sundarajan. She's a musician, Dalit rights activist, and the executive director of Equality Labs, an organization that aims to end caste discrimination directed at South Asian religious and cultural minorities. We're going to talk more about caste later in this episode, but if you're unfamiliar, caste is an ancient system based in Hinduism that set up divisions in society based on wealth, rank or privilege, occupation, and race.
3: There is no logic to the reasons why someone might be at the top of the caste system or someone who might be cast out, you know, put into the very bottom of the system simply because of the the accident of their birth. To think of this like spiritual system that operates very similar to race that assigns spiritual purity, your job, where you live, um, who you marry and who you love and your proximity to structural violence and discrimination. But the spiritual component is the piece that's so difficult because to imagine that someone is spiritually defiling, you know, in front of God, that's actually what it meant to be untouchable within the caste system.
1: Untouchables, now more commonly known as Dalits, have been at the bottom of India's social hierarchy for centuries. And even though India banned caste discrimination decades ago, discrimination and violence have persisted both in India and here in the U.S.,
3: We just want to be able to be safe here in the United States. We didn't flee CAST apartheid to come and see CAST brutally recreated here. And yet that's
2: exactly what's happened. Our conversation with Mori coming up after this short break. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's our conversation with musician and Dalit rights activist, Thenmori Sandarajan.
1: Thanks for joining us, Thenmori.
2: Oh, so happy to be here. Yeah, we're really excited about this conversation. We wanted to start by looking at your own journey navigating discrimination as an Indian American woman. Your parents were Dalits from a village in rural India. But you grew up in Southern California after your family immigrated to the United States. Can you talk a bit about what your family's experience in India was like and why they chose to come here? I think that, you know, both
3: of my parents really struggled with tremendous discrimination. My dad was one of the first people educated in his generation that was able to leave to the United States. But to imagine the kind of terror that he went through, like his village was constantly tortured by dominant caste people who, in order to kind of keep the wages low, would often come with like machetes to make sure that people never got quite settled. Like the threat of violence was always uh, a looming kind of crisis that that just kept people kind of contained and when my dad went to medical school people were always trying to find out what his caste was and you know he tried to keep quiet where he could and so he hid and so he just learned to create and perfect you know how to be the invisible dalit you know excel but never be present and be able to kind of like crack a joke that could disarm people, but always keep up the shield so that people would never get to know you. You know, my dad went by his initials his whole life. So he went by TSS Rajan. And I was like, this is so embarrassing. Like, why don't you just like tell people what your real name is? And he was afraid because his real name would actually have revealed his cast background. So he only came out publicly as a Dalit a day before his 75th birthday. That's how terrifying it was. And my mom, you know, she was also like one of the first doctors in her community. And she's Christian. You know, my dad's Hindu, so I was raised both Hindu and Christian and Because there's aspects of the caste system that come out of Hindu scripture, but it's now found in all South Asian religions, people who are from caste oppressed faiths that are South Asian Muslim and Christian and Buddhist are often afraid to tell people because it's an automatic um, marker of their caste background. So my mom, you know, grew up being a very passionate Christian, but had learned how to hide it. So when we came here, like, you know, we lived in one of those like ranch houses in Orange County, even though there's like nobody around us, right? She would lock the door to our playroom and she had a little altar to where she would like pray to God in the closet, literally in the closet. So then, you know, she would go in there and she's like, guys, it's time to pray. She would close the door, close the drapes, open the closet, light the candle, and then just look around. And I, I'd always be like, Mom, what are you looking around? There's nobody here. But then we would pray. And then I would hear her say the prayers in Tamil. And it was just her connection to a very loving God. But she was so afraid to even just have that. And then when it was done, she would like literally close the closet and then go back into the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You're sharing
1: these really vivid stories of watching your parents hide the fundamental core of who they are, in, you know, and, and sort of living in the shadows. How does it feel for you now remembering those, those really, what sounds like painful childhood memories?
3: Well, I think that's what's so poignant about it is that, you know, in order to get free, we need to have the language of freedom. And I think what so many caste oppressed people do, particularly parents, is that they want to preserve and save their children from this violence. And I think many of them naively thought, like, if we come to the United States, it's not going to be here. So let's just not talk about it. Mm -hmm. Like, we're here, and if we just don't think about it, maybe it'll go away, right? Mm -hmm. But trauma doesn't work like that. You know, systems of oppression don't work like that. And in fact, when you rob people that are oppressed of the language that they need to be able to understand their conditions, it's an even more violent experience because it's kind of like you're climbing the mountain of trauma, but blind, you know, so you have to kind of feel your way out of it. And, and that was the experience of me and my sister where we could definitely see all of the trauma of our parents. Like they were terrified of being found out from other people. They had nightmares mm-hmm. about what would happen. But. We're not talking about it. So there was a lot that me and my sister really had to kind of uncover for ourselves and give language to and give emotional intelligence to. Because again, like with a system like CAS, like we very much think about it as a political system and economic system, but we don't have a lot of the language around the psychosocial dimensions right. of how violent a system it's been. But I will say that there was this really funny moment when, you know, once me and my sister found out we were untouchable, we were like really hungry. Hungry to kind of read more works about mm-hmm. it. And I don't know if you remember, but there was this like film... In the nineties called the untouchables about Al Capone and Elliot Ness. Oh, I mean, I don't think I watched it, but I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. But me and my sister, this took on a whole other meaning. We're like, there's a film about mm. us. So we like rented it and then put it in the v- VCR and we were just like waiting. We were like, what would Indian people be doing with like monsters? <laughs> and then we were thinking like, okay, like where is the point that Dalits come into this? And then, um, and then I was like, were we connected to Al Capone somehow. Oh my god! And then, and, then, and then, when the credits finally came, me and my sister was like, "I think there's no untouchables here." She's like, "Yeah, yeah, I don't think so." You know, <laughs> but that just speaks to like how little education existed about us beyond that, like two pages in like a history book in sixth grade. But also, it's so significant that historical erasure occurred, given that not only, like, are we one of the oldest oppressed peoples in the world, but the sheer number of us. Mm -hmm. Like, when you think about 260 million people, that's nearly, like, two-thirds of the American population. You know, why wasn't there more information? And I think, you know, now we see, like, so much more discourse because of the internet. And there's so many ways, that like, oppressed peoples are connecting with each other. But at that time, there was, like, an information desert. Hence, Dalit's watching a movie about Al Capone and trying to think about, yeah. am I going to see myself
2: there? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you had mentioned that you and your sister like found out at one point that you were untouchable. And I was wondering, what was that moment? I think what was interesting was that, you know, I
3: had to do like a, a report about um, the Bhopal chemical disaster. It's like one of the largest industrial disasters. Um, happened right around the time that Chernobyl happened. And... At that time, there were so many magazines of the people that had been harmed. And essentially what happened is this one plant that manufactured pesticides exploded. And just like that, thousands of people were exposed and people kind of like blistered Mm -hmm. in chemicals and, and many died. And the majority of those people that were impacted were people, And when I read about it, I don't think I even understood the word untouchable, but I just thought that was so weird. And so I just started reading about them because I was so compelled by the images and, you know, the starvation that you have as a brown person with so little representation that when, you know, for a moment you saw so many brown people on the screen, and especially with this disaster, especially from an American company, I wanted to know more. And when I went to the encyclopedia to read about untouchables, I like what I saw was just mm-hmm. so horrific. Like there was this idea of the system of caste. And also like key to the system of caste was this idea that the people who were at the bottom were there because they were like spiritual criminals. They had done something in a past life. And so their karma needed to be redeemed by being put into a lower position. And that that idea just stuck with me because I was like, well, what could someone have done to require that? And I found like in reading that, I thought reincarnation was such a terrible thing because there was no way out of it. And that's one of the most painful pieces about the caste system is that it has a spiritual justification for oppression. So when I read about that, I was very troubled. And I went to my mom and I said, mom, you know, I just read about this caste system and you know, what caste are we? And then my mom just gave me the look, you know, it's, it's a moment that I'm sure every parent really um, dreads where you have to really talk to a child about a system that no child's consciousness should ever really mm-hmm. have to grapple with. And so, you know, my mom took some time and she said, well, you know, honey, like uh, we are those untouchables, but you know, it's a lie that wicked people tell. And I don't want you to think about Mm -hmm. it anymore. We're here and we've escaped it. So I think my mom may have told me to like not think about it, but that's actually all I thought about for weeks. And late at night, I would just kind of close my eyes at night and I think, what could I've done in another life? Was I a rapist? Was I a murderer? Was I a thief? you know, why was I untouchable? And I would like, you know, think about like, am I dirty? You know, like, do you know how children think about cooties? Like, I was like, did I have spiritual cooties? Was I a spiritual criminal? Could people see it? And you know, I'm a Dalit who has grown up in the United States. Imagine people who are in the punishing environment of caste back at our homelands. Not only do you have this like terrible, like existential prison that your life is meant to be, you are reminded of the fact that you are less than in every single interaction you have.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting to me that even in your own home, you know, you're not really identifying explicitly as Dalit. Your parents aren't talking to you about that. And you've said this several times, but you describe identifying as Dalit American as sort of coming out or the moment that, um, you know, your father, for example, decided to come out as Dalit when he was 75. I mean, who was he coming out to?
3: Coming out as Dalit is, you know, a very different experience now than it used to be. Like mm-hmm. when I first came out and I was one of the first out Dalit Americans, it was very violent. I would often face um, caste slurs. Um, I've had thousands of rape and death threats. People have attempted to de-platform me for simply talking about caste. I've been referred to as a terrorist. Someone even said that I had hate in my bones And and always simply because I was saying, I am Dalit, caste apartheid is wrong, Mm -hmm. and we deserve to be free. But the truth of Dalits is so earth-shattering to those that have lived with caste privilege for centuries because the demand for equity feels oppressive to them because they can't imagine a world where they would share space with me as a fellow human being. But just because it's not in their imaginary doesn't mean that it can't be in mine. And -hmm. I think that's the powerful, emotional, and beautiful opening that I think the movements of Dalit people really create for many people, is that as one of the oldest oppressed peoples in the world, we are one of the oldest resistance movements. And at the core of it is this commitment to humanity and dignity and equity, And, you know, what's so interesting about my dad is that he always pushed me to ask the tough questions and to fight the hardest fights. But I think this piece about him being out was so hard for him because he was worried that he would lose his income. Or, you know, the the decades of impending violence that he always had to navigate was very scary for him. So the conditions of him coming out had to be quite intense. and And they were. What was happening was in 2015 to 2016, you know, one of our first campaigns that we were part of was this movement of caste oppressed people to fight the erasure of the word Dalit and the caste system that was being led by Brahminical or caste-privileged forces um, in the state of California. And on one side, you had, like, well-heeled advocacy organizations, you know, marshaled with other partners millions of dollars to look like they were the civil rights players in a fight. But their arguments were about the fact that caste needed to be removed from Californian textbooks and -hmm. that the word Dalit also needed to be removed. And their arguments actually made no sense. They were like, well, if you teach caste, Hindu children are going to be bullied. Now, you know, I'm not a social worker and I'm not a therapist, but I've never seen any recommendation out of either of those disciplines that say the way to address bullying is to erase history. You deal with it through psychosocial measures, right? But they had developed this very precise set of talking points because their end goal was basically to remove the language that American children would be exposed to to understand the movements for caste liberation. And I think that, you know, obviously when Dalit Americans like myself saw that, we were like, bullshit, you absolutely cannot do that. You know, mm-hmm. we need our history told. And we were just like, you know, two to 300 Dalit families and allies, um, but we were intercast, we were interfaith, and we were irrepressible. And my dad came with me to every single one of those meetings. And he watched hundreds of people on our side give testimony, and in giving testimony, you know, he saw um, how important it was for us to be heard, for us to be counted, for us to name our experience, because the California Board of Education wasn't understanding how significant a thing it was to erase our history from California history even though cast to Californians were some of the first Californian Theses to come here. So it was like doubly wounding. So it was in the middle of those intense battles. And, you know, we were also sitting next to one of the um, opponents on this issue who was constantly giving threats to me um, and would specifically sit next to me to try to intimidate me from speaking. And I think that's really what inspired my dad to come forward you know, being 74 and living 50 of his years here in the United States, if this wasn't the time to come forward, when would it be? And even here, if people who are dominant caste are willing to threaten his daughter, he wanted to say his truth. And I think, you know, like for me, I just feel like, That's the profoundness of this movement, that if a system of violence can follow us here to the United States, we have remedies for it. I don't want other elders like my father to be waiting to be out and be their true selves because we don't have laws to protect them when we, in fact, have processes to do that. And so I think this is why I'm really committed to this national battle to make CAST a protected campaign all across the country because it is time. I really want the generations that come after me to feel safe and to feel their full selves and to know um, not only that they can stop discrimination, but that they don't have to know what it is to live in the closet, you know, that they can worship who they want, that they can love who they want, and they can be free. I mean, that's just an incredibly
1: powerful, powerful story. When you when we ask these types of questions, you don't expect to always get this just beautiful moment, but the idea that it was your activism and your work and your search for you know, finding this language, but also fighting for your history that brought your dad out, I think is extremely powerful. Um, and you, you did mention also that there's this idea of how and why this caste system was transported to the U.S. So I want to talk a little bit about the state of of caste discrimination in the U.S., um, as well as the, the survey numbers that Equality Labs came up with back in 2016. This was the first ever survey done looking at caste discrimination, correct?
3: Yes, this was the first survey. And, you know, I remember when we first did this survey in 2015 and 2016, the survey itself put a South Asian American organizations into existential crisis. And I was like, well, you know, I think what this survey does, it's not going to divide the community, but we're actually going to get data about how divided the community already is. You know, not talking about it is not the answer. We have to begin to start breaking these taboos to shed light on what's going on. But we got a very powerful data set of over 1,500 people in the United States. And, you know, the numbers were startling because it was like one out of four Dalits who took the survey said they had faced some form of physical assault. One in three Dalits had ex- uh, reported facing some form of discrimination during education. And two out of three Dalits had reported being treated unfairly in their workplace. Mm -hmm. And just those, you know, first three stats paints a very stark picture. And I think it's because of that, that over half of the Dalits that took our survey said they preferred to hide their identity because of how scared they were. And in addition to the data that we collected in a quantified manner, there's tons of people that told us like heartbreaking stories. And it was then we knew as we were assembling this report that we had really touched a nerve, but we had never expected the kind of traction that this report got. And so many institutions are now addressing and really thinking about the question of caste because South Asian Americans are one of the largest growing um, immigrant communities in the country. And we are in every institution, which means caste is in all of those institutions. And so what's very important is for, you know, whether you're a university or your workplace is to start having conversations and start getting ahead of this problem. And I think that many institutions are beginning to do that. And I think that's the power of this really amazing civil rights movement um, happening for caste protections.
2: More of our conversation with Dan Mori coming up after this short break. Stay with us.
0: SoCal, get ready for the cultural event of the year. The LA Times Festival of Books is back April 22nd through the 23rd at the USC campus. Don't miss this fun-filled celebration of storytelling with over 300 exhibitors, 500 authors, readings, food, live music, and more. The best part? It's free for all ages. Visit latimes.com slash festival of books for programming details and volunteer opportunities. That's latimes.com slash festival of books. Gracias.
1: Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's the rest of our conversation with musician and Dalit rights activist, Thenmori Soundarajan.
3: Oh, Brahmins, yes, they wrote that, crushed up beneath their
2: feet. You've talked a little bit about how your work is sort of inspired by the American Civil Rights Movement. And you've said also before that your music is directly inspired by Black protest music. You recently remixed Bob Marley's Redemption song, um, but you updated the lyrics to be about Dalit rights. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what sort of lessons you've taken from that and and sort of like applied that to your own work?
3: Well, I think that actually Black and Dalit movements have a very long history of solidarity. And I think that's an amazing testament to the vision of Black internationalism, where I think many Black radical revolutionary thinkers you know, saw the limits of white supremacy and attempted to make beautiful bonds of solidarity to try to circumvent the violence of the white supremacist American state. And I think it was because of those connections that just as Black people were yearning to see other people trying to be free, so too were Dalits. And the history of Dalit internationalism is in part inspired by the movements for abolition. And so I think a lot of my thinking and a lot of my work around this has been really to be able to be an ally to black struggle and to also learn about ways that, you know, some of the liberatory practices that we see out of Black movements can also be inspiration for the ways that we think and honor and do our work as Dalit liberation thinkers. The model of the Black Panthers inspired a Dalit Panthers that was similarly determined to save our people from atrocity, but to also create an internationalist vision that was rooted in workers' rights and equity.
2: In addition to sort of your work on bringing awareness to caste discrimination, you, you do so many other things. You also are like an artist and a musician. And, and I was just wondering how you've used art and photography in your activism work.
3: So, you know, I think for me, like my um, journey as a musician is really personal and very spiritual, actually. You know, my cast is a singing cast and I, you know, I really believe as a socially engaged artist that art is one of the most powerful tools for revolution. And I think it's because it creates a heart connection to very difficult issues. And that the imaginary is this powerful sandbox to push open ideas that feel really hard to be material in the present time. And, you know, to give you an example, like, you know, I worked on a poster series with two other artists that had these three women who held up signs. Like one said, stop Islamophobia. The other said, like, end cast apartheid. And the other said, smash for patriarchy. The problem came in 2018 when women activists and journalists were meeting with Jack Dorsey about, you know, the violence that women were facing on the platform. One of the Dalit activists that was there gifted Jack two of my posters. And, you know, there was a photo that happened at the end of that meeting where he's seen holding a picture that says smash Brahminical patriarchy. And that photo got leaked. So all of a sudden, you know, entire Twitter of India lost its mind because the, the power of that artistic object in the hands, not of brown women, but in, you know, the hands of one of the most powerful tech CEOs changed everything. And overnight, You saw the words smash for patriarchy on every news outlet in every part of the world. And for one day, the head of Twitter got to experience what it was like to be a Dalit woman. And so that to me is that power of socially engaged art is that when you create an artifact, when you activate the imaginary, you can make the most impossible things material.
1: So I want to talk about the lawsuit that came out last year when the state of California sued Cisco Systems on behalf of a Dalit worker. Uh, the Dalit worker, who was anonymous, said that he was harassed by his co-workers who were from a dominant caste. And then once they reported this to HR, they were actually retaliated against. You heard from people from across the industry who said that they've experienced some type of caste discrimination. Part of the reason a lot of them don't come forward is because of the precarity of their jobs and their H-1B visa. Can you talk a little bit more about how much of a role this sort of vulnerability of job status and immigration status has in perpetuating caste discrimination in Silicon Valley?
3: Well, I think, you know, for people to understand how difficult it is, you just have to think about the fact that, you know, when your visa is dependent on your job, the the stakes of what it means to report uh, a cast as hostile workplace isn't just that you lose your livelihood. It's that you lose your ability to stay in the country. And that's devastating, especially for most Dalits who are the first generation learners and earners for their family. It's not just a loss for them. It's a loss for their entire family line. So it really makes it a situation where people are not given any incentive to to report what's happening. And the situation is pretty bad. Like I know that. After the Cisco case came out, our hotlines were just inundated. And in the, in close to like three to four weeks after the Cisco case announcement, we had close to 250 complaints from Dalits who were working at companies across the valley. And this include folks at Google, at Facebook, at Microsoft, at Apple and Netflix. And they reported discrimination and bullying and ostracization and even sexual harassment and firings. So it was pretty brutal. And, you know, the thing that really struck me was that in all of these cases, people reached out to us because they wanted to be heard, but they had no intention of coming out or reporting because of this bind of the visa. And that's why there needs to be a formal remedy, because these companies are failing their duty of care to their employees, but also it makes bad business sense. Like, frankly, most, you know, tech companies are doing whatever they can to seize South Asian markets because they see the future of the internet as not being in the global north, but in countries like India and Bangladesh and Pakistan and Sri Lanka. And in those regions of the world, the people that are the next billion coming online are the cast depressed? So diversity and equity isn't just a good moral thing to do. It actually is a smart thing to do because you will have a diverse enough workplace that would know how to design for that audience. And the fact that we're not having this discussion... And the fact that, you know, very few companies have taken the warning of what's happened to Cisco seriously shows us this is a time where we really need to have movements that are pushing this issue because caste is a workers' rights issue. And this is why the Alphabet Workers' Union, you know, made one of the most strongest statements of solidarity to both the Cisco case and demanding Alphabet to add caste as a protected category because they see caste as a workers' rights issue. And for the largest union in the Valley to make that statement is a very powerful bellwether of what workers and corporations are asking for and that we'll have to move to whether they want to or not.
1: Yeah, and um, just for our listeners who you know may not be up to date with some of the momentum that we've seen around this activism. Um you're talking about the Alphabet Workers Union. And for those of you who don't know, Alphabet is Google's parent company. They put out a letter basically asking, um, the organization to introduce caste as a protected category in the U S they already do this in India, but they want them to do it globally. Um, and then also pushed federal government to consider caste as a protected category. Um, but we've seen similar movements in other places and institutions. Santa Clara recently had a meeting about, um, whether caste should be a protected category. Um, our colleague, Nani Sara walker is also reporting about activism in schools like CSU, which um, saw a recent push to um, include caste as a protected category. Talk a little bit about why this is a, such an important first step in fighting against caste discrimination.
3: So I think what's so important is that in most American institutions that are governed by civil rights law, when you are a protected class, it opens up everything, The things that follow include, you know, starting to collect data, trainings to build competencies, and and also, I think, you know, an ability for people to feel comfortable reporting discriminatory situations, but also positive investments in terms of scholarships and training for caste-depressed, you know, employees and students so that it's not just access into that institution, but it's success,
2: and so all of those things are possible when we just acknowledge that there's a problem. You know, you've talked about sort of this immense pushback to some of the, the work that you're trying to do, like creating these protected categories. And I know there have been like protests at meetings from people who oppose making it illegal to discriminate based on caste. Who are these people who oppose this and, and how does that sort of play out? Well, I want to be really clear. Like the
3: majority of the people want discrimination to end, whether it's racial discrimination or gender discrimination or caste discrimination. We are trending progressive as a society. And in general, once people hear the kinds of things that are happening to caste suppressed people, they're like, okay, well, that's clear. We need to stop that. You know, we are definitely in the majority. We are on the right side of history. And, you know, this is an unstoppable movement that said, there is a small but vocal minority that, you know, treats the questions of equity like oppression simply because they're caste privileged. And so many of the dialogues that they're having make absolutely no sense. So some of the things that we heard was that the addition of caste would discriminate uh, against um, Hindus which makes no sense. Um, there's also a lot of like hyperbole, like if there was the addition of caste, like would that mean that people would have to like wear cast brown badges and, you know, sign up on some sort of a caste list and even anti-Semitic remarks like, you know, will you put us into, you know, concentration camps and leading pretty heavily into Holocaust imagery. And I think that, you know, I have empathy for the people on the other side of this question because their minds are so unable to imagine a world without caste, that they are threatened by the fact that Dalits could have equity and that we could be in a country where we could ask for protections under the law. And yet no matter wherever they are in their journey, um, we still need to proceed forward in our commitments for freedom.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many of these moments that you've mentioned in this interview and just across your work where um, there's just been such significant progress but a lot of that has happened really more recently and you know you are doing this work as a dull American woman you're not doing this in solidarity with a community that is experiencing discrimination you're experiencing it yourself like you are the target of it as you are fighting for it I mean how how do you keep going how do you continue to fight for this
3: progress The truth is that this moment is really won by so many people who have sacrificed so much in their life in order to be able to bring this story forward. But I think what really keeps me going is knowing that I'm part of a very long lineage of Dalit resistance. And many times when you are born in an oppressive system like caste, it feels like all the options that society gives you are those of death. You know, and to grapple with that death and all of these different components is so heartrending. And yet when you read these thinkers and you become part of the caste abolitionist movement, mm-hmm. you become part of this like irrepressible network of people who are all choosing life together. And I think we, we all kind of know what that feeling is like, especially coming out of the pandemic. We've just been through so much. And yet to choose life at this moment in history is to choose everything. And it's healing, It's healing to be in community with people. It's healing to imagine a world where all of us could be free. It's healing to think about love and empathy that we might have together. And even if we begin experimenting in those communities that are cast equitable in small units, those small units become fractals of much bigger versions of society until eventually we take over the world, you know?
2: So before we wrap up, it's time for our weekly segment called Asian Enough Confessions, where we share a time or thing that's made us feel that we're not Asian enough so that we can unpack it together, kind of like group therapy. I'll start with one. I went to UC Berkeley for undergrad and um, I went to a pretty white um, high school. And so it was the first and and UC Berkeley actually has like a huge Asian population. So it was one of the first times I'd, I'd been around a lot more like South Asians who weren't um, directly part of like my religious community. Um, I just remember this one um, uh, person who was Indian, who I was like starting to get to know. We were pretty friendly. And they were like, are are you, are you actually Indian? You don't really like, like, like you don't know any of the things I know. Like you don't do these like Hindu things that I do. Like, um, are you, are you actually an Indian? And it it, it was said in like more of a mean way that I'm saying, but I think just like kind of, there is this sort of like dominant like Brahminical culture that um, I think sort of takes a lot of air in in those spaces. Um, That's really interesting. Like I think
1: Asian culture is so gi- gigantic and we talk about how diverse Asian culture is, but Indian culture is so diverse as well. And there is such thing as feeling and not being... Made to feel like you're Indian enough,
3: so it's so funny that you mentioned that Sohana because I had literally the exact same experience where you know because again I am, i'm I'm I was raised both Christian and Hindu, and you know my dad raised me to be a seeker, which meant that you know I kind of I did it all you know I was really especially if you go to Berkeley and if everybody knows Berkeley like you've got every single faith there you you know it's really a place for exploration. And I remember these, like, obnoxious, dominant-casts, like, Hindu kids, like, especially men. The men were, like, the worst. Yes. You know, this worst. one kid—this this kid came up to me, and he's like, you're so whitewashed. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you're eating meat. Like, what are you, like, afraid of Americans? And I was like, no— dumbass like i'm not i'm not whitewashed i'm it and we eat meat you know but it was so funny he was so confirmed on like what capital i indian meant and that he could tell me what i could do and especially because i didn't go to temple and i was someone who was raised hindu and raised christian but that wasn't ever a possibility in his mindset you know hindu for him looked like one particular way and and that dogmatism was so violent And so, you know, whether it was students or faculty or everything in my university experience said, you know, why bother being a Dalit? And it really erased my confidence around feeling like I could be confident as an Asian American. And yet, when I think about who I am, and especially what it meant to connect to my history in the face of systemic erasure and structural violence, it is my people that really hold me up. And, you know, my caste, like, you know, it's as old as the 13th century. And when I think about my ancestors, like, they were never, ever going to be physically, materially free. But they just loved their children so much. And, you know, every child that came before me, our ancestors, you know, practiced hope like a micro expression in their mind to pass on love until one day they could have a daughter like me who would be free. Dalits are a product of centuries of love centuries of love. And there's no one that can steal that away from us. No one that can take away our dignity and equity, and most of all, who we are. And the journey to the reclamation of our identity is the essential path towards our freedom. So I am most definitely Asian American enough. I am most definitely Dalit American enough. And most importantly, I am human and I'm here to get free.
2: Do you have an Asian Enough confession you want to share with us, call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. We'd love to hear from you. All right, that's it from us here at Asian Enough.
1: Thank you to the Rajan for joining us. And thank you, our listeners, for listening. And don't forget, if you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps people find the show. Asian Enough is hosted by me, Johanna Bouya.
2: And by me, Suhana Hussein. Our producer is Asal Asanapur. And our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epin. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Ben Musig, and Thanmori Sandarajan for letting us play clips of her music in this episode. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our founding producer, Lina Anwar.
1: Come back next week for another great episode of Asian Enough. My colleague Tracy Brown and I will be talking to the media personality and entrepreneur, Angela Yee. And remember, Al Capone will not be advocating for Dalit rights.
3: We're like, there's a film about us. So we like rented it and then put it in the VCR. And we were just like waiting. We were like, what would Indian people be doing with like mobsters? And we were thinking like, okay, like where's the point that Dalits come into this?